It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. This show is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and on the podcast apps. My name is Kay Wenigle and I'm joined today by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hello. How are you today? Good, thanks Kay. Good. While we often focus on the science of climate change and the technology available to alleviate it, the social sciences such as politics, sociology and psychology will play a vital role in addressing the challenges we face. To further our understanding of some of these social science impacts, today we're joined by Associate Professor Kristen Lyons from the School of Environment and Development Sociology at the University of Queensland. Kristen, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Hello Kay and Natalie, how are you both? Very good. Looking forward to the discussion today, Kristen. Yes, it should be an interesting one. Thank you. Kristen, how would you characterise the general theme of your research and expertise? I am, as you said, I'm a sociologist of environment and development, so I'm especially interested to explore the social dimensions of environmental problems and especially where it relates to development questions where there might be intersections or particular challenges and opportunities for Communities, communities in the global south, so I work a lot in the East Africa and the Pacific context and also now beginning to work in the Australian context um, with the ways in which Indigenous communities here in Australia are directly impacted and opposing big extractive industries projects that present profound livelihood impacts for communities at the local level. But my work as a sociologist is to look at and try and understand the social dimensions of, of environmental issues and challenges that we face. I think that focusing on those social questions often complements and helps us to think about technical challenges and, and other kinds of challenges as well. Because if we don't have people on board, and then, then you know, no matter what good ideas that we might have, um, things will be difficult to work in the long run. Yeah, the technology in isolation is, is not the only solution, is it? No, absolutely not, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, people are at the heart, I think, of whether things succeed or fail. Um, and, and when I say people, I don't just mean individually. As individuals, I mean as communities in terms of policy processes. So we need to look at the way in which we organise as societies and what we prioritise and what gets left behind. So, you know, to give one tangible example that we see particular investment in fossil fuels extractive industry in Australia and we've seen really limited investment by comparison in renewables, you know, that's an economic and a policy framework which has profound ecological and other implications. So thinking about the social dimensions of that, of why we have prioritised a particular energy reality right now over another one is, is important. Understanding the problems is, I think, a precursor to addressing them and working towards solving them. 
So as part of that, you've looked at some of the issues relating to climate change as, a, as an impact area. What, what's your particular expertise in that area? Yeah, well, I've been very interested to look in the international context at the rapid expansion of carbon markets and because we've seen, and particularly in the context of international frameworks like the, the 2015 Paris Agreement, significant investment in mitigation projects, so things like um, carbon trade that we can do um, offset in one part of the world um, for industrial pollution in other parts of the world, including in Australia. So for me, again, as a social scientist, I've been interested in what are the, what are the social drivers of those and what are the social impacts. And, and so what's come out of that work over many years in East Africa is the profound limits and often human rights abuses that, are, that can be associated with those projects. So in the international context, I've been very much looking at carbon markets and the um, so-called red-type projects. Um, but then in the Australian context, I've just started in recent times to look at large-scale infra- uh, extractive industry projects and in particular the proposed Adani coal mine for the Galilee Basin and Indigenous community responses, and, and in particular the, the powerful work of the Wangan and Chagalindu Traditional Owners Council in continuing to defend their right to say no to such a big project. So looking at these social questions in the context of what will our energy future look like and what might a fair and just um energy transition look like into the future and I think we have to include people and in particular local and Indigenous communities if we are going to achieve a fair and just transition. We'll be discussing the Uganda issue that you've raised and also the Adani coal mine but just getting back to you still, activist academic, is that a broadly accepted term and Hmm. as such and you're being described as one is it difficult for you to get funding and grants as an activist academic? Um, I think mm, it's a good question. Is it broadly acceptable? I, I, I think so. I think in the communities where I seek to work, um, for example, with, with communities, with, with NGOs in East Africa who are seeking um, to campaign for the rights of local communities who have been impacted by big projects, now in the work I'm doing in Australia, seeking to work with um, uh, traditional owners who are campaigning against the mine, I think having a position, not not being a, a so-called objective researcher who sits outside, but actually seeing myself as engaged in a process that is effect- seeking to affect positive change has been really important in terms of building positive relationships with the communities that I seek to work of course, the research that I do is always grounded in my discipline and including the, the training of my of the methodology of my discipline. Um, but I think it's, in the times that we're in and the challenges that we face, being engaged in the practice of our work and not being afraid to take a position is, is really important. And this is a powerful space that researchers can occupy is to actually advocate for the things that they uncover truths about. So, yeah, I think, it is, I think it is acceptable and it makes the work that we do more possible because we actually take a position and we can move with the communities that we're working with and, mm-hmm. and work collaboratively. Um, but in terms of the question of getting funding, uh, 
you know, getting funding is a highly competitive process. I, I couldn't say that describing myself and being described as an activist academic has constrained funding um, for me any more than, you know, anything else has. But let's see, you know, where that goes into the future. But I think, um, no, I, I, I don't think so. And in fact, it's opened doors in some, in some regards very much because of the nature of the work that it's seeking to have an applied outcome it's speaking to are engaged directly with communities that are impacted by large-scale projects and that engagement um, is, is often attractive to funders as well because, you know, we're looking to have real-life impact for the work that we do and many funders want to see that as well. Good to hear. So you, you've, you've engaged yourself in, an, in a number of ways from, from our reading, Kristen. So you recently participated in the federal election as a Greens candidate and you're obviously well engaged in the democratic processes in Australia. Um, but in a recent article in the conversation, you, you sort of highlighted some, some risks to our democratic process um, in terms of you know, where the, the coal industry is involved and, and applying for... For permits, what what are the issues that you've come across with the Adani mine? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so I'm, I'm sure that your listeners will be aware that the proposed Adani mine would be, you know, is described as a mega mine. Um, you know, as many talk about it as releasing a carbon bomb in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with this mine. The scale of the mine places it as one of the largest. Uh, certainly one of the largest in Australia and indeed possibly the world uh, in terms of the scope as a, as a, as a big coal mine. Um, and so there's a range of different interests, Indigenous, environmental, um, local communities who live in the area who are engaged in grazing and other rural life-related activities. So there's, there's been significant opposition. I'm particularly in my work interested in... Um, the work of the Wangan and Jaga and the Traditional Owners Council in opposing the mine, um, and, and that is the collaborative work that, that we are doing together now. Um, but so your question is about what challenges... Sorry, your question, can you just repeat again what the orientation of the question is? Oh, basically just to you know get the gist of, of what you've written about in that recent article in terms of... You know how how are our democratic processes challenged yeah, by this situation? Yeah. yeah, sure. So what we see in the state of Queensland and indeed federally is a really clear and strong commitment to the extractive industries and to coal in particular, and we see that in terms of subsidies that get paid out to the coal industry and and the the kind of rolling out of the red carpet that we continue to see. So most recently we saw the state um, here in Queensland declare the Adani mine as critical infrastructure. Now, mm. this puts it on par with, um, with, with, with hospitals and schools and, and vital water infrastructure in a time of drought, for example. So this is a really significant shift that we've seen or, or a, a, an extension of um, the kind of ongoing commitment we see by the state government to ensure this project happens. And we've also seen in the last couple of weeks... Um, exemption to the water licence um, application that Adani would need to apply for as well. So we're seeing ongoing this, these kinds of enablers for the coal industry in general, but Adani in particular, that, you know, really clear indications that, you know, 
we want this mine to go ahead from the from the view of the state government. Um, but at the same time, as you're saying, you know, we get this push-pull. We're seeing these real drivers for Adani and the, uh, the supposed Carmichael mine. But at the same time, great, uh, you know, attempts to try and close down the democratic process whereby Indigenous groups or environmental um, groups through the legal process are able to um, raise concerns about the impacts of the mine. So the mine has had to go through an impact assessment process, of course, as all um, infrastructure projects do. Um, but there's been some limits, significant limits, to the scope and to the level of detail undertaken in that project, in, in that impact assessment process. And so court proceedings are actually really vital where Indigenous and environmental groups see failings in the impact assessment process. But the, the um, it's both the state and the federal governments that are changing those the legislation to, or wanting to change the legislation to stop um, both environmental and um, indigenous groups from having that impact, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, we've seen real um, real calls, um, including from George Brandis last year, and again from Malcolm Turnbull in recent weeks, mm. um, to to close down options for for environmental groups in particular um, to have their say. And we're hearing this language of of green warfare being peddled out, but somehow environmental groups are using the law to try and sabotage these projects. Now, I think it's really good and it's really important, sorry, to demystify and to critique this language. Environmental law in this country has been really important historically and in contemporary times in, in, in seeking to ensure protection of endangered species, appropriate use of water and other um, natural assets in this country. And the law is there for community groups you know, to ensure that their interests are best represented. And so this call that we're hearing, including from the, the Prime Minister, that we need to close down the options for groups to use these laws, is deeply concerning because why else do we have a legal system, including a suite of laws related to the environment, if not to ensure that they are appropriately applied um, for the protection of ecological systems um, and, and for the... Um, protection of, of Indigenous rights. And, and in regard to the latter, we're seeing, you know, profound failings um, in the case of Indigenous rights because what we have had is on three different occasions, the Wangan and Jagalungu Traditional Owners Council have said, no, we, we reject the offer that Ajani is making to us to go ahead with this mine. We reject it. But through the court system, they they are now required to undertake proceedings in order to seek to have that right to say no respected. And that's quite different from the um, environmental law changes, so that it stops environmentalists from speaking out. We're now getting into native title legislation. Yes. But just yes. before we do, I just wanted yes. to remind our listeners, for those of you who have just joined us, we're talking to Kristen Lyons, from the University of Queensland on her social research. And at the moment, we're just talking about the Adani coal mine and the effects it's having. So could you just expand on that native title legislation challenge that's happening at the moment? Yeah. And look, if this is an area that I'm just moving into. So it's an area that I'm, that I'm looking forward to learning more about. But we're, we're really excited that um, 
We have just received funding from the Global Change Institute at the University of Queensland to work directly in collaboration with the Wangan and Jagalungu Traditional Owners Council, who are, um, as I said, serious. You know, driving this challenge to oppose the the Adani Carmichael mine, and as I understand, um, for W and J, it is it is because native title law is unable to provide them with a legal framework to say no to this mine that native title law closes down the option of actually saying no, but rather it's this constrained space of um, negotiation um, for, for you know, a set of options within the context of this development goes ahead, what, on what terms can it go ahead. But actually what we see here is that for the WMJ Traditional Owners Council, this is not a vision for change for this area that they are seeking. Actually, they are seeking to get recognition um, of, of rights to this land, as I, as I understand, and, and, and for the right in that context to say, to say no. And I, I think it's really important that um, we learn, in re- and, and, we, and we, we know this, but it's been really good that in recent weeks the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Human Rights Defenders came to Australia and on the basis of meeting with a range of environmental activists and a range of Indigenous community organisations and representatives that they concluded that Indigenous activists, including those engaged in this in this campaign against Adani, as well as environmental groups, do face profound challenges um, and, and intimidation in the context of, of what we were talking about earlier, this kind of corporate government that has been significantly captured by the fossil fuel industry and exerts really heavy pressures in all sorts of different ways on those seeking to chart out a different future for the region of central Queensland and indeed for Australia. I mean, what we're talking about, what, what, what is a kind of vision for what our energy future might look like in this country? And on the one hand, we've got this push for, for coal and the ongoing expansion of coal. And then on the basis of an Indigenous rights agenda, what, what as I understand, the the W&J Traditional Owners Council are charting forward is a vision of of moving, of, of assisting Australia to move away from its coal, historical coal dependence, which um, cannot arguably be part of a, of a clean energy future if we are to come close to meeting the agreement that we've now ratified, the, the Paris Agreement. So this isn't just the kind of issues we're... These issues that we're facing in Australia are not isolated to Australia, are they, Kristen? You've documented um, instances um, in, in Uganda of, of similar issues with you know, local peoples being disaffected by what's going on generally with, with energy policy and um, carbon emissions policy. Can you yeah. tell, give us a bit of an outline about you know, what you've been investigating there? Yeah, absolutely. Look, no, absolutely. The, the experience in Australia and the kinds of pressures that we've just been talking about that um, in Indigenous communities face in the context of seeking to assert their rights um, is, is faced in many other parts of the world. And as you say, I've done some in-depth fieldwork in Uganda, so I can speak specifically about that. But we, but we also know that this happens in many other parts of the world. Um, 
that, and the bigger picture is the kind of structural forces at work that are driving a kind of extractivist fossil fuel future when this is really antithetical to where we need to be going. Um, you know, coal, oil and gas are really, the future has to be uncertain for these things. We have to be asking serious questions about these things in the climate-constrained world that we know that we live within, of course, and just have observed the Marrakesh climate talks in the last couple of weeks. And, and we heard through the United Nations that we're likely going to be have lived through our hottest year on record this year, that 16 of the last 17 hottest years on record have occurred this, you know, in the last two decades. So we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a warming world. Climate change is, is here and amongst us. Um, so this is the context in which these debates about energy futures are, are rolling out. And so in many parts of um, the world, what we're seeing now roll out is this notion of, of carbon markets, that somehow we can offset industrial pollution and therefore not fundamentally challenge what we're doing, extraction of coal, um, and all the forms of violence that can go with that by offsetting it, by engaging in activities. And plantation forestry is one example, but there are others where um, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are then sequestered or absorbed through those activities and they're able to then offset industrial pollution in other parts of the world. So polluters, whether it be national governments or individual corporations, then buy carbon credits in order to offset their pollution. And so that's the work that I've been looking at in Uganda and there we've been looking at one of the largest um, plantation forestry operations on the African continent. And um, over a period of about eight months in the field, what we've documented by spending a lot of time firsthand with communities is, is, is that for many people, they have been forcibly removed from land that was vital to their life and livelihood to make way for these trees, for these large-scale monoculture industrial tree plantations. These are not forests. These are industrial forestry plantations. Um, people are forcibly removed from this land. And this is that's vital for growing food, for grazing animals. It's sites of access sorry, sites of cultural significance that people are losing access to. It's landscapes where water is, is vital, both for um, human use as well as for animals to drink. So um, there's really significant um, human rights and also ecological issues that come from the introduction of these projects. So to speak just very briefly about the ecological issues as well, so in the project that we've looked at, and the company is called Green Resources, they're a Norwegian-owned plantation forestry and carbon offset company, and they operate in a number of African countries. So in Uganda, the two sites that they have gained a 20-year license on are, are directly adjacent to ecologically significant areas. One um, area of land is directly adjacent to Lake Victoria, which is, of course, the second largest lake in the world. Or oh, actually, I think my students corrected me recently that it's the third largest lake. But it's one of the biggest water bodies <laughs> in the world. It's significant. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and of course, the River Nile flows from it. So when you've got large-scale monoculture tree plantations that do use chemical regimes, particularly in the startup phase, the planting of the seedlings, um, and in their early years, particularly during weed management, the early years when weed management chemicals are used, 
there's significant issues in terms of chemical runoff. Um, there's issues when monoculture plantings are established anywhere. I'm sure we all understand that we see a real decline in um, in the creation of a habitat for diverse species of birds and other of other animals to live. So there's a range of ecological issues which some NGOs on the African continent are doing great work to um, to campaign on these issues. And I, yeah, I must say that. I mean, we my research based here in Australia, we, I've worked with the Oakland Institute, which is a US based NGO who do fantastic. Um, campaign work, particularly on the African continent related to land grabbing and the extractive industries. But we have found it absolutely vital to collaborate with local NGOs. So we work with the National Association of Professional Environmentalists, which is based in Uganda. And it comes back to your earlier question about what does it mean to be an activist academic? And I would say I couldn't have done this work if not for the relationship with that local NGO, who are also a Friends of the Earth affiliate, by the way. So they're otherwise known as Friends of the Earth Uganda. So that might be a name that Australian listeners um, can remember a little more, a little more clearly. But um, I understand um, Sweden's also played their part in trying to um, stop green, um, yeah, green, green resources. resources. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's an interesting story and it's very much in flux at the moment. So... And, and maybe this will help to be really clear about what carbon markets are and how they work. So, Sorry, we, we will have to do the brief version of it, Kristen, sorry, because we're nearly out of time. Oh, um, sure. So the Swedish Energy Agency, which is the Swedish government energy provider, buy the carbon credit from green resources, and they have currently halted payment to green resources because of the failings of the company in terms of its... Um, poor practices and poor impacts to communities and ecologies. So this is exciting because Sweden has actually halted payment and is putting pressure on green resources to actually clean up their act. And it's a collaboration with a bunch of NGOs, including across the African continent and the Oakland Institute, that continues to put um, the pressure on the company. So this is the point that 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 is at right now and it's a real wait and see but it, it was talked about at the recent climate talks um, which I was really glad to see and Carbon Market Watch is um, doing some great work in that regard in terms of continuing to raise the profile of this issue and what it means for local communities on the ground. Mm. Well so it's had a really significant profile that's tremendous. Yeah it is great it is great and particularly because Green Resources is one of the biggest plantation operators on the African continent. So um, what they do and the precedent that gets set, I think is really important in that regard. They're no small player. And they do get significant. They have received significant funding from the Norwegian government, from the Finnish government, because these projects are framed as development projects that they will deliver local community development outcomes. And so... You know, governments around the world and private sector actors are investing in these because they see them as a as a as a corporate social responsibility activity. That's um, great which, to hear that there's a lot of Scandinavian countries that are getting involved. And unfortunately, yeah. we've run out of time, though, Kristen. So, thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Have you got any websites that you can point our listeners to? The Oakland Institute is a really good website. 
And the Wangan and Jagalingu Traditional Owners Council have a Facebook page, which is a great resource to follow in terms of ongoing activities. Thank you very much, Kristen Lyons from the University of Queensland. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others, just go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Time-tied. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.